You're listening to the Mental Health Download from the nonprofit Mental Health Association Oklahoma. I'm Colleen McCarty, Policy Counsel for Oklahomans for Criminal Justice Reform. On today's episode, I talk with the Download's co-hosts for the day, Whitney Cipolla and Matt Gleason, about criminal justice reform in the Oklahoma legislature. Let's get started. The Mental Health Download starts now. Welcome, everyone, to the Mental Health Download. As Colleen did such a wonderful job, I'm here with my dearest friend, Whitney Cipolla, who's Mental Health Association Oklahoma's advocacy specialist. And also, as you heard in the intro, we're going to be talking with Colleen McCarty, who is the policy counsel for Oklahomans for Criminal Justice Reform. This season on the podcast, we're going to focus on how you can cultivate healthy minds for yourself and your loved ones, as well as for people living in your city and across Oklahoma. Advocacy is such a key part of that. Many families are affected by incarceration in Oklahoma and a big aim here at Mental Health Association Oklahoma and Oklahomans for Criminal Justice Reform is to reduce the incarceration rates in our state. Colleen, thank you so much for joining us. Let's look at the intersection of criminal justice involvement and mental health and how that's showing up this session at the Capitol. Thank you guys so much for having me. I'm excited to have this conversation. Okay, so I want to kick it off by hearing a little bit about your organization and your biggest priorities in this legislative session going back to February and maybe how those have shifted up until now. Sure. Oklahoma's for Criminal Justice Reform, or OCJR, for those who are into the whole brevity thing, is a coalition of business leaders, researchers, lawyers, advocacy organizations across the state of Oklahoma who are interested in making our state a better place to live by reducing incarceration and reinvesting in things like mental health care, you know, making sure that we have all of our constitutional rights, either in the courtroom or if we're out on the street and just making sure that we can be a revitalized state by investing in the right things. So, you know, we have to divest from incarceration in order to put the money where we know we can see a more proactive spending towards improving the quality of life in Oklahoma. And this session, we have been focusing a lot on sentencing. We know that Oklahoma sentences are longer than any of the surrounding states, and that is due to sentence enhancements, which are applied on people who have prior felony convictions. In Oklahoma, if you have one prior felony conviction, your sentence can go up, the range goes up to life, and the mandatory minimum is doubled. And if you have two priors, your mandatory minimum is tripled, and it's still a maximum of life. So we're really saying to people, you know, you have one chance to mess up, and then if you mess up a second time, you can go to prison for life on all felonies, pretty much. And then if you mess up a third time, it's even worse. So most states don't apply enhancements this way. They apply them only to violent crimes. Oklahoma, the reason we've been the number one or two incarcerator for so long is because we apply these kinds of enhancements across all felonies. So one of our big priorities this session was Senate Bill 704, authored by Dave Brader. And that was trying to limit the application of these enhancements that I spoke about so that if you get you know, caught for a crime, you're subjected to the same sentence range every time, which is what most other states do. And then we also have a spending bill. It's called the Violence Prevention Innovation Fund that would take savings from Senate Bill 704 from sentencing reform and put it into a fund that would be able to give grants to any providers of 
care to people who have suffered violence or have suffered adverse childhood experiences. We know Oklahoma is one of the top states for adverse childhood experiences. And so people who provide care for those types of people would be able to get grants under this fund. And we can really start to be proactive about preventing violence and preventing crime by giving victims of crime and violence what they need to heal through trauma care or mental health care or whatever those providers do. And it would allow for some innovative programs to come into the state that haven't been able to sort of get legs because the problem with innovative programs is people want to see, you know, evidence, a lot of evidence before they'll invest in a program, but you can't really show that a program works unless you get a chance to try it. And so the, the fund would also allow grants for innovative programs that disrupt the cycles of harm and violence. So unfortunately, Senate Bill 704 is stalled in committee and it doesn't look like it's going to move out of Senate appropriations, but HB 2879, the fund I was talking about, that bill is still alive and we should see it come back around probably around late April. So HB 2879 is a funding bill and those are kind of treated differently in the legislature. They can get brought up, you know, through committee, through the finance committees early on in session, like what we've seen the bills that are doing right now that we just passed that deadline, but they also aren't really subjected to the bill deadlines in the same ways. So they can they can go through this other process called the Joint Committee on Appropriations and Budgeting or JCAB which was introduced in around 2015, and it allows the chairs of the budgeting committees in both the House and the Senate to introduce bills for the purpose of building the budget and allocation. And they can kind of put bills through the process simultaneously, like in both chambers, and they go along the process together in order for the purposes of building the budget. And so they're kind of exempt from the regular bill deadlines and rules. So we still want to be advocating for HB 2879 to get those those victims and those um, survivors of violence, the funds that they need to start, you know, breaking those cycles of, of harm. So that one is one that I like a lot. Thanks for that really excellent explanation, Colleen. I know that when I first read Senate Bill 704, a lot of people can get confused with sentence enhancements and what that actually means. And I just want to make it a point to say that it doesn't mean folks can't get the maximum sentence that's available in statute or under the law. Sentence enhancements just stack based on prior uh, felony convictions. So hopefully Oklahoma won't have to wait too much longer to end sentence enhancements, especially for nonviolent offenders, because we know that's a really big contributor to our incarceration rates and numbers. Now I want to shift yeah. gears a little bit to a bill that I know both of our organizations have been supportive of and that's House Bill 1005 and Senate Bill 511. So both of them use the same language and allow for specific groups to engage in harm reduction services. And this is really aimed at combating the spread of infectious diseases that can be transmitted through drug use, and it can connect folks with substance use disorder resources. So Colleen, walk us through why is this bill so important? So currently, providing these types of harm reduction services are is criminalized in the state. There are a couple of people doing the work in urban areas to offer these kinds of needle exchanges, but they are currently, you know, at the risk of the fact that those are against the law. 
So it's important to enable them to do this important work. And I think that I've been reading a lot about harm reduction and the concept behind harm reduction. And it's important, I think, for your listeners to know, you know, that harm reduction is sort of the next phase, I would say, in policy response to drug use specifically, but it could be applied in other areas too. What we've done in the United States is we've done what you guys all know is called the war on drugs. This was from basically the 1970s until even now in Oklahoma, we still have a lot of war on drug and tough on crime policies that they basically add long mandatory minimums in prison and super long sentences targeted at you know reducing drug use, reducing drug sales, reducing drug manufacturing. And I think most policy experts at this point have seen that this kind of overly punitive response uh, to drugs has just not been successful. It's not helping addiction. It's not treating addiction as a disease. It's treating it as a, as a crime and it's putting people in prison for a very long time when they could have a much lower level of investment in treatment in you know alternative courts or in harm reduction services that would allow them to kind of turn their lives around for a much smaller investment from society because incarceration is one of the most expensive investments that we can make and it should be utilized for those people that we truly know, you know, we want them to be separated from society for a, for a long period of time for a very good reason. And so harm reduction really looks at the fact that human beings have used drugs, you know, for all of our existence and we shouldn't really be legislating policy that is going to, you know, criminalize that kind of behavior because it's just always been there. It's always going to be there. And it's based in this very judgmental, someone maybe say it link it to a religious type of aspect of saying we can control other people's behavior and it just hasn't been successful. And so harm reduction looks at it and it accepts the basic truth that people are going to use drugs, that people, a lot of people use drugs recreationally and don't experience life-altering effects, they're able to, you know, continue with their jobs or they're able to, you know, do what they want and they use drugs recreationally and they're not like these like junkies, so to speak, on the street, but there are a very small subset of people that can't use drugs, you know, recreationally, they end up becoming what we call substance use disorder or what some people call addicts. And so, you know, harm reduction policies allow for people to be to use drugs safely and for people to get access to resources that will help them stop using drugs if that's what they want. One of the most important things about harm reduction policy is that you're meeting the person where they are and a lot of people don't want to stop using drugs. And if you're meeting them where they are, you're saying, okay, then at least do it safely and don't hurt other people. And that's the most important thing about harm reduction, I think. And that's what's most important about this bill is that this is really the first time Oklahoma has entered into this phase of policy. Uh, and that's what's really exciting about this, Whitney, too. I think I'd like to hear kind of what you think about it. But these are sort of like the introduction of these ideas to Oklahoma. Yeah, absolutely. I think it's really critical that this type of legislation is happening at this moment in time because of the increased rates in drug use and the increases in overdose deaths that we've seen in Oklahoma due to the pandemic. And so I think that people who might oppose this bill would say, well, I don't want to incentivize drug use. I don't want the government to be handing out clean needles and picking up dirty ones. So one point 
in the bill I want to highlight is no government funds or tax dollars is going to go towards any harm reduction programs. Those will all have to be privately funded. But no, it's it's a very important step in reducing intravenous drug use transmitted diseases. It has that component in the bill that people who are out in the field doing harm reduction work can do a little bit of case management and refer those folks who are using to services and treatments that are available in the community. And I think it's just overall a really positive step. And like you said, treating it more like a public health issue because we know that's what it is and not treating it as a criminal issue. So yes, we're, we're definitely keeping tabs on that one and we'll keep our listeners posted on advocacy items for when they need to contact their legislators in support of that. I want to talk about now some other bills uh, that are taking proactive approaches towards reducing Oklahoma's prison populations. So what are some of these bills that would provide resources for folks in lieu of incarceration? So one of the bills that we're watching pretty closely is HB 1880. It is called the restorative justice pilot program. And this is actually being um, run by the district attorney's council. District attorney Jason Hicks went out a couple of years ago to California to a conference and they were talking a lot about restorative justice at this conference that he went to. And he heard from a DA in Yolo County, California, which is up near Sacramento, about implementing this program for restorative justice in his county, which they call the Yolo Neighborhood Courts. And they've gotten lots of awards for this program. I think maybe it's important to say that restorative justice is a lot of things. It's a concept. It's a policy approach. It is like a way of living kind of. And so important to kind of just contextualize that this is a program that focuses on the principles of restorative justice. So what restorative justice is in in concept is it's basically saying that you know, crime hurts and justice should heal. And it's this idea of, you know, our current system takes one harm that is committed, which is the crime, and then it perpetuates more harm on the person that committed the crime. And by taking them out of society, taking them away from their family, inflicting harm on their children, and so on and so forth. And so it's really taking the idea of it. And this comes from ancient tribal rituals across North America and and each tribe does it differently. So I don't want to group them all into one, but you know, this idea of restorative justice has been borrowed from the tribes. And it's, I just want to make sure and give homage to the tribes because they're really where a lot of these concepts come from. But so what you, so what would happen in this program is the defendant would agree. They would have first have to have done an offense that qualifies to get in. And we're not sure right now what that list of offenses would look like, but it would probably be you know, low-level first-time offender, felony offenders of probably, you know, they probably won't allow any, like, domestic violence or sex offenses or anything like that. It would probably mostly be drug offenses or property offenses that, you know, is a first-time offender. And that that person can go into what's called, like, a neighborhood courts mediation type of program. And they sign an agreement saying that they will abide by the neighborhood court agreement. And then when they go into this conference, there are several members from the community there. And those people talk to this person about the harm that they, you know, perpetuated and what are the ways that they could 
make amends essentially to the community. And this can range anywhere from, you know, go get your own hammer and you come and you fix this window that you broke to, you know, I think you should go to five sessions of therapy or I think you should volunteer at my car dealership and help me clean up whatever. It could be anything. And it's supposed to be very tailored and very customized to whatever that person's needs are. And and everything that happens in this mediation is completely extra legal. So none of that can be used against the defendant in court. And so that kind of can encourage them to be a little bit more honest and a little bit more seeking amends. And then after a few, the, the agreement goes on for the next few years. And if the defendant completes everything that they agreed to in the agreement, then they don't get prosecuted essentially and they don't go to prison. So it does have really cool impact. It's been very successful in Yellow County. It's been successful in a couple of other places in the country. There's a big, there's a famous one in Brooklyn that does stuff like this. And so it's a, this is another place where it's really exciting to see these kind of concepts that have been utilized in other places coming to Oklahoma. I do think it's important to note that You know, we're watching this one a little bit closely because we know that, you know, this is going to be 100% controlled by the district attorneys and they're going to get to decide who goes into it. They're going to get to decide, you know, who's eligible for this type of program. And I think that, you know, knowing how things have played out in our state, it's just that part of it is a little concerning to me, but it is still an exciting thing. And we're going to try to, you know, watch this and, and see how it gets implemented. And hopefully we'll have a good report about it you know, after the first few years. So I think they're they're letting it go for five years. And so if they feel after five years that ASM is successful, it will just kind of lapse. But if they like it and they want to keep it going, they can keep it going. Well, and I like what you said a lot about it. It really allows people to be honest because I think our current criminal justice system, people see that as the only model for justice. But if you think about it, it's actually not very victim-centered because it doesn't behoove people to be honest, because if they admit to a crime, that could lead to their own incarceration and separation from family and a disruption of earning income, all of these things. And so in my copious amounts of free time, I'm actually in a restorative justice cohort with the Restorative Justice Institute of Oklahoma so that I can actually be trained to lead some of these mediations. But yeah, I think it's it's also a really cool model because you see there's a level of honesty and there's involvement from the direct person who's been impacted. And it's not just that victim or person of impact, but they really bring in the whole community and how can you repair harm to the community? So I think this sounds like a really cool opportunity to try something new in Oklahoma. Yeah, absolutely. And I think, I don't know which counties they're going to be doing it. I would assume um, DA Hicks's county is going to be one of the counties that they pilot this in since he's been so involved in it. But it's going to be really interesting to see. I think they they are proposing to use some of the mediation volunteers that have that the administrative office of the courts has in a separate program and just sort of cross train them on how to do restorative justice. And so it's supposed to have a net cost of zero or fiscal impact of zero. And so it's interesting, I think, and it gives us some opportunities to sort of see from with a DA led program, like how they want to see criminal justice reform happen, which is, 
you know, something that we haven't really seen before. So that's exciting. The other one I wanted to mention was HB 2320, which is a jury sentencing bill that would allow the jury to give deferred or suspended sentences. Currently, the jury can only give incarceration as a sentence if they determine that the person is guilty, which if you think about it, is pretty big disincentive for going to a jury trial because it's like, well, I know they're probably going to find me guilty. Most prosecutors aren't going to take me to trial if they don't feel they can get a guilty verdict. And then if I am found guilty, I'm definitely going to prison. So it's a big chill. That part is a big chill on the jury trial, right? That people end up, you know, taking pleas that maybe they wouldn't have taken if they had another chance out uh, to get a deferred or suspended. And right now, the only people who can give us a suspended or deferred sentence are the prosecutors. So the fact that this is expanding that right to the jury is, is a cool and exciting thing that, you know, I think will have a good impact all the way around on defendants' rights, and and maybe we'll see more people exercising the trial right when this goes through. Yeah, those both sound like really great opportunities for other pathways for Oklahomans, so I'm excited as well. I'm wondering, too, though, those are kind of focused on the diversion aspect. Are there any bills in the legislature right now that are looking specifically at assisting folks who already have involvement in the criminal justice system, whether that be adults or at the youth level? Yes, there's several. I'll try not to go on and on about all of them, but there are several ones that are doing important work. HB 951 is dealing with court fines and fees warrants. So I don't know if you follow any of Damian Shade's work at the Oklahoma Policy Institute on fines and fees or Ryan Gensler over there. They've done incredible work around how many Oklahomans are suffering under the weight of impossible amounts of court debt. And maybe if you've never been involved in the criminal justice system, you don't know, but when you get prosecuted for a felony, there are fines. So you can also you can be sent to prison and you can be given a fine for the criminal offense that you committed. Those go all the way up to, you know, for some drug trafficking crimes, they're up to $100,000 per count. And then also, so that's on top of your incarceration. And then also each time you get adjudicated, there's a line item, several line item fees that get added to your account, your court account. So it could be anything from a wildlife assessment fee to a victim's impact fund fee to just a lengthy lengthy trial fee is one of them. And they go all the way on and on. And maybe if you've ever looked at your speeding ticket, you can see some of like this list of like court fees that kind of get added up. And so 951, and also if you don't pay your fees, that can turn into a warrant. So the warrant is a basis for for stopping you and arresting you. So if you are someone who's frequently, you know, adjudicated in the criminal justice system, you pretty much have a warrant out for your arrest all the time if you aren't able to pay these fines and fees. What HB 951 does is it basically adds the ability of officers to not arrest people just for a failure to pay. They can just give them a citation and tell them to come into the court and make a payment. And right now, if you have a warrant out for your arrest, you have to be arrested. There's not really a lot of discretion there. So people are getting pulled into jail, then they get adjudicated for not being able to pay. And the judge says, well, how much can you pay today? And they say, I don't know, maybe $5 or $10. And so they give the court $10 and then they leave. And it's a huge waste of resources on the, the police. It's a huge waste of resources on the court and on the jail. And so HB 951, we think will help with that. And if 
it still allows people to be jailed for failure to pay, but they have the court has to find that the person willfully did not pay. And there's a lot of uh, considerations in this bill that would play into whether or not the person was willful. And so the court can't just kind of say like, oh, you spent money last week on clothes, but you didn't pay your fines and fees. That that makes it willful. No, it really has to be a pretty more severe. Like you have all this money in your account and you're choosing not to pay um, your court fines and fees. So it, it is a, it's a positive change. And I'm interested to see how that impacts, you know, people on the ground with their court debt. The other one is HB 2729, which is a prisoner reentry pilot. This is going to be, we've got a lot of pilot programs going on, which is a good sign, right? I think it's like a pilot program is an easy way to get your feet wet in some of these policies, but without the big investment. And since Oklahoma is always scared of making any kind of investment in anything, at least seeing the pilots go is a good indication that we might see an investment in this in the future. But Michigan is famous for doing a really extensive prisoner reentry program. And as a result, they have like very low recidivism. And so I think Oklahoma might be looking at some of those policies where the DOC or the Department of Corrections, it gets involved pretty early with the person who's about to release probably like nine months in advance. And they start building this reentry plan, whether it's they need substance use resources or they need housing or they need mental health or they need prescription help or whatever it is that person needs. It's sort of customized to um, their needs. And then, you know, that person has an interface with this reentry person that they can go back to them over the course of the recent, you know, leaving prison. They can say, I can't find you know, I can't find my social security card or I need help getting my driver's license back and that person will be a resource for them. So it's not going to happen across the system. I think it's going to be a pretty small pilot, probably one or two facilities or something like that. But it's exciting that they're looking at some of those reentry policies. Seven, HB 1795 is a driver's license reinstatement reform. Basically, right now, Oklahoma will revoke a license for one year, if you have one offense on your record, if you have more than one offense on your record, they revoke the license, I think, for two years. And then if you have three or subsequent offenses, they revoke your license for three years. And so and are those what happens, driving offenses? Or can you clarify just what kind of offenses cause someone to lose their driver's license? I believe it's any kind of felony. But I can look really quick if you want clarification i think it's any felony but maybe it's a driving do you know the answer whitney and you're testing me i'm pretty sure it doesn't have to be driving related which makes it even worse yes and why this is important is okay so you just get out of being out of society for several years or months and you need to be able to get a job you need to be able to take care of your kids you need to be able to take your kids to school you need to be able to like do the things that each of us do each day and take for granted. And if you aren't able to get your license back for an extended period of time, you're you're going to take a calculated risk every day when you leave your house that you're going to get pulled over for having a, a suspended license and you risk going back to prison for doing that. So it's really important that we think about how these policies that enact on people's lives, you know, like we want people to rehabilitate and we want people to integrate back into society and be functional taxing citizens. But then we make it so difficult for people to be able to do that, that we sort of 
make it impossible for them to succeed. And so this is just one of those little things that most people don't know, but that, you know, impacts so many people. And so it does seem like a small reform if you don't know how these policies interact with people's lives, but it's actually a pretty big deal. So it's reducing that amount of time that your license can be suspended to six months if you only have one offense. And if you have any more than one offense, it reduces it to just one year of license suspension. And then they're also looking into, I think, some types of provisional licenses, which would allow people to drive like only to work into their kids' daycares and back without being subject to some type of revocation. Yeah. And I just looked um, it up. and, And the biggest thing I see that it's doing is it doesn't revoke someone's driving license just for a misdemeanor possession charge. So that's a positive step. People with misdemeanor charges for just having the possession of a controlled substance, like they should still be able to drive and get where they need to go and be able to, like you're saying, take their kids to school, get a job that they can transport themselves to. So I I see how, like you're saying, a lot of people don't realize that this even is an issue, but it really can have a snowball effect. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. And then you get pulled back into court for driving, you know, on a suspended license and you have to deal with those more court fines and fees. And it's like, you start to see how these things kind of snowball um, and it becomes pretty impossible to get out of that hole. I also wanted to talk about 1799, which is a juvenile expungement bill. It makes it easier for people who have been involved in the juvenile justice system to get an expungement. An expungement is basically like an erasure of your criminal record by the public. So I think law enforcement and judges and courts can still see it. But like if you're looking for a job or trying to get your license or things like that, the, the criminal conviction would not come up. And basically 1799 makes it easier to get a juvenile expungement, which is good because, you know, like we were talking about that snowball effect, so many people get involved in the system pretty young before their brains are even fully developed. And then they're making bad decisions when they're 17 and those decisions kind of follow them throughout their life. And so I think one of the goals of this bill is to make it easier for people who got involved in the justice system young to kind of start over and get a clean slate. That's fantastic. I mean, just chatting with you, it gives me hope that there's still a lot of positive change that can happen in the criminal justice field as a result of bills in this session. So thanks for giving me a little little bit of hope moving forward, even though we know Senate Bill 704 was a hard loss. There's still a lot of good bills out there. It's true. It's true. It was hard. It was a bad one for me last week, but I've kind of rebounded a little bit and looking at some of these other bills, I don't feel like we're totally not making any progress at all. It feels like we are making progress. It's just a little bit more incremental than I would like because I'm a very impatient person. <laughs> That's okay. Me too. <laughs> and I, you know, it wouldn't be the Oklahoma legislature if there weren't at least a couple of bills we're watching for the opposite reason they catch our attention because we think they could be harmful. So there is one last bill I would love to discuss with you, and that's House Bill 1633. Uh, This would require someone in jail that has a pre-existing condition or who has a self-inflicted injury. It would force them to be financially responsible for their treatment. What are your thoughts on this one, Colleen? 
Oh, gosh, this is just a mess. You know, we haven't had time to talk as much as you probably would like to about the intersection of mental health and criminal justice. I know a lot of these bills are going to positively impact people with mental health or who struggle with mental health issues. But this bill, you know, something that I haven't heard us talk about very much in Oklahoma is the extremely horrible impact that places like prisons and jails have on people that are already struggling with depression and anxiety. So, or other, you know, mental illnesses. So you're taking somebody who, we know a huge uh, percentage of the jail and prison population, probably, I think I've seen numbers ranging from 60% to 80% of people have had or do have some type of uh, mental health diagnosis. And then you're taking them and you're placing them in an environment that is so incredibly disruptive and scary and loud and awful basically for anyone even if you have if you're neurotypical it's horrible and then you and then you're going to see you know their behavior and their outcomes decline in that setting in an institutionalized setting like that is going it's going to make whatever their situation is worse it's not going to start all of a sudden getting better because they're in a jail. And so I don't know if you guys have been following what's been going on with the Oklahoma County Jail, but I mean, it's just horrific conditions. And, you know, they know that it's such a transient population because I was talking to someone from the Cleveland County Jail the other day and they have an average stay of three days. This is the problem, right? It's like you don't have time to really, like in DOC, I'm not going to praise DOC, but I will say that they have time with that person to understand and properly medicate and shift medications if they need to, because that person is with them for a long time and they can address those things. But if someone's only staying for three days, you really do not have time to assess and get a good handle on what's going on in order to properly medicate or whatever they need. And so uh, you're taking so many people, many of them are struggling with housing security. Many of them are already struggling with addiction. Many of them are already struggling with mental health issues. And then you're putting them into this horrible, chaotic situation. And then, uh, I mean, self-harm is something that you can almost just expect from this system. And then you're going to say, if you come into the jail and you self-harm yourself, you have to pay for your medical. I just... I don't really have words, Whitney. Being on punishment, you know, for someone who might be struggling with mental health. And I think something I really want to highlight before I got involved in this work, I think, and I think a lot of people don't realize that there's a difference between jail and prison. And so what we're talking Mm. about is jail. So folks who might be awaiting, you know, either release or conviction or a sentence. And so a lot of these people, weren't able to afford bond or bail and that's why they're there and then so they're in these really horrible conditions that Colleen's describing and you pair that with isolation from their families and the disruption of routine it's it's really just caking on more and more I don't know just more salt in the wound kicking someone while they're down and at their lowest and I I think too a big part of it is if someone is in jail's custody, that becomes the fiscal responsibility of the county. And so part of me, the cynic, the cynist in me is wondering, you know, are counties just trying to offset these costs by putting it back onto the person who's in need of medical treatment? And we shouldn't look as people 
we shouldn't look at people in county jails or in DOC custody as just a price tag that costs the state money. These are people and they deserve dignity and respect and adequate and timely health care. It also divests the state of any responsibility for how awful the conditions are, right? Like, or how much they're exacerbating those people's tendencies towards self-harm. Like, you know, they don't get to just say, we put you here in these terrible conditions that are exacerbating your tendencies towards self-harm. And then we get to just say, oopsie, that's your own fault. Like, that's not how anything works. Yeah, I think what you were saying about the fact that it's jail is, is even more important because we know that Oklahoma's jail population is mostly full of people who are not cannot afford bail. So when you get adjudicated for a crime, you have they have about three days to put you in front of a judge and you can get your bail set. And most of us could probably make bail, you know, because it's 10% of you have to put up to a bondsman 10% of what they say your bail is. So if your bail is $10,000, you have to put up $1,000 to get out. These are people that can't afford $1,000 to get out. They're, they can't afford $50 to get out. And so, you know, they're not going to be able to pay once they're not going to be able to pay these fees anyway if something happened. And so it's just an extra way of punishing people, you know, and trying to say we're, we're criminalizing mental health issues and then we're criminalizing self-harm even further. And it's, I hate this bill. Me too. And, you know, we'll definitely have some action around it. Hopefully it just won't be heard. It can die somewhere along the legislative process. But again, this is one we'll keep our listeners looped in on. And if it does progress, we'll for sure have some action surrounding it. Yeah, good to hear. Well, again, I want to thank you, Colleen, for taking the time to talk with me. I really think that good things are happening in the state of Oklahoma. And that's, you know, you and your colleagues at OCJR are a big reason why. So I'm just privileged to work with you all. But as we close things out, our tradition is to give the guest one final opportunity to share a bit of wisdom with our audience. So Colleen, what call to action or sentiment would you like to leave our listeners with? Gosh, there's so many things. I think that we have shared a lot of hope today and there's, there are baby steps, but I just, I do want to remind everybody that without big, bold and meaningful action on our, on our prison population and on our criminal code, we're not going to come out of the top 10 incarcerators. We're not going to come out of the top five. And so I would just urge everybody to continue to push on this issue. I know we're all tired of hearing about it. I know that it's been a long time coming and we say it every session and, it's like a broken record, but the reason it's a broken record is because those people in power really do not want to change and they don't want to change the way the system is structured. They don't want to change their discretion. They don't want to change their power. And the only way that we can bend power is with pressure from people like you guys and people in your networks. And I know we all work jobs and we're all tired and we're all, you know, got kids and don't sleep well and everything else adults are dealing with right now with COVID and it's just hard out there but if we don't put the pressure on them you know nothing good really ever happens uh, up there from what I'm seeing so sorry to be a downer on the last note I do want to say I have seen 
so much positive momentum in the last five years in Oklahoma, and it's because of the Mental Health Association and because of things like OCJR and, and you know, the Oklahoma Policy Institute. And it can feel like we're stuck in the mud sometimes, but if you look back even six or seven years, there's been so much positive movement forward. And so don't give up and keep fighting and keep being loud. That's what they're there for is to listen to us.